If I were to ask you how much you have in the bank, you would probably be offended. You would probably say to me, I don't really think that's any of your business, is it? If I were to say to you, can I see your bank statements for the last couple of years? You would say to me, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? Uh, that's a private thing. What, what I do with my money is mine. And, and we don't have any business looking at each other's financial things and talking to each other about our financial things because that's private. And when we come to the church, we have a tendency to bring that mindset into the church. We, we tend to say, you know, what I do with what I have is my own thing. You're going to have to trust me on this. And we don't talk about money a lot in the church. We don't talk about wealth and possessions. It, it becomes something that we're hesitant to deal with. And there's a bad reputation of that. In fact, there's a reputation that's all the church talks about. But when you read the scriptures, we find anything but that mindset. In the Gospels, of the 38 parables that Jesus tells, 16 of them are about money or possessions or wealth. There are about 500 verses in the Bible about prayer, less than 500 about faith, and about 2,000 that deal directly with money and wealth and possessions. And the reason is because what we do with what we have, what we do with money and wealth and possessions, is such a clear indicator of what's going on in our hearts. It, it, it is a direct reflection of what's important to us. And I think that's why Jesus talks about money and wealth and possessions so often, despite the fact that we don't like to talk about it. And one of the places where we hear Jesus talking about what we do with what we have is this parable that we've just read a few moments ago in this passage in Luke 16. As you're reading it, it's one of those stories where you think, you're in the middle of it and you're thinking, Jesus, where are you going with this? And you get to the end of it and you're saying, Jesus, where are you going with this? In fact, someone said to me, why in the world would you want to preach on that parable? And I said, well, sometimes I'm not thinking clearly when I choose a passage. Because I'm asking myself the same question this week, thinking, what was I thinking? You you get to this story, and and here's a guy who has everything. It wasn't uncommon for someone who was a, a servant to, in a sense, sell themselves to a rich person as a manager of their wealth. And, and the reason they would do this is because they got a good income, they got a roof over their head, they got three square meals a day, they were taken care of. They did well. And here's a guy who in that culture has basically everything. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who are envious of him. And he blows it. It doesn't tell us what he does. It doesn't tell us how he messes up. But all Jesus says in the parable is that he squanders his master's wealth. Now, it's interesting that we don't get any context for this parable. You know, most of the parables, someone asks Jesus a question and the parable's an answer. Or Jesus, uh, Jesus sees a situation or he overhears a conversation and he tells a parable. Or someone asks Jesus to do something for them and he tells them a parable. But here, we don't get any kind of context. Now, there had to be some. 
Something had to trigger this story. But I think Luke is trying to help us see that this parable at the beginning of chapter 16 is directly connected to what Jesus has just said at the end of chapter 15. And the end of chapter 15 is the story of the prodigal son. And one of the things that connects those stories is that Jesus uses the same word here in this parable about how the servant squanders his master's wealth. It's the same word that he uses in the parable of the prodigal son when he says he took his father's inheritance, went off, and squandered it in the far country. So we don't know what he does, but he wastes his master's wealth. And the master says, all right, that's it. All the good times are over. Clear up things, clean out your desk, you're done. And the guy says to himself, what do I do now? He's not really interested in manual labor. He doesn't know how to to do a whole lot of other tasks. And he's thinking, what am I going to do? I've lost my income. I've lost my, my, the roof over my head. I've lost all this good stuff. What am I going to do? And an idea pops into his mind. A rather devious idea, I think. And he goes to all the people who owe his master money. And he says, take your bill and chop it down. You owed 1000 now you owe 800 You owed 800 you now owe 450 And you get the sense from this that it wasn't just two people, but all the people who owed his master money, he went through them all and lowered their debt. Now, you get to the end of the story, you're thinking, wow, this guy is going to get fried by Jesus. The master is going to take him out. He is going to nail him to the wall for this kind of devious behavior. And as usual, Jesus' stories, when they come to the end, take a twist. And you get to the end of the story, and Jesus doesn't say the master condemned him, the master fried him, the master put him in jail for what he did. The master says, wow, good thinking. Really? That, that, that's, what, that's how you respond to it? That can't be right. That's not how things work. That, that can't be a story Jesus told. Wait a second. Now, Jesus and the man says he commends him, not for being dishonest. He doesn't commend him for conniving. He does commend him for being shrewd, he says. Now, the word shrewd can have negative and positive connotations. It can be negative in the sense of, uh, you know, someone who is conniving, deceptive. In fact, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the word, a form of this word is used to describe the serpent who tempts Eve and says the serpent was more crafty than any other animal, more shrewd than any other animal. So it can be negative, but, and, and we all know the implications of people being shrewd negatively. We all get phone calls from people who want, who tell us they will give us the world if we just give them our credit card information. Or we get emails from people who say, just click here and your life will never be the same. And they are right. It won't be the same. We understand the negative connotations of shrewdness, but it also is a positive word too. It means wisdom, insight, 
It, it is a word that, that is used to say someone understands. They have discernment. It's the word that, that is used to describe Solomon and, and what he asks of God in the passage we read from 1 Kings earlier. God says, whatever you want, ask it of me. And Solomon says, I would like to be shrewd. I would like to be wise about governing these people you've given me. And God says, that's a good request. It's good to be wise, to be shrewd in that sense. It's the word that describes Joseph. when uh, The idea of Joseph when he's taken into captivity and is in prison. And, and Pharaoh has these dreams about uh, famine and, and, and plenty. And, and he called, like, Joseph finally appears before him and he tells him what the dream means. And he says, you need to, somebody who is, who is shrewd to store up enough grain to last the seven fam, years of famine. And the, Pharaoh says to him, who better than you? Who is, who is shrewder than Joseph? Wiser than Joseph to do this? And the opposite of this kind of shrewdness is foolishness. It's not quite as popular as it was a few years ago, but some of you may have seen the television show The Apprentice. Donald Trump uh, gets together a group of people who, who have this contest, and every week they, they have these business kinds of contests where they, they sell things on the home shopping network or they go out and make some product and see who can sell the most of them. And they, they keep eliminating people every week until they get down to the last person. And the last person who wins the contest gets to run one of Donald Trump's subsidies in one of his companies. And so you have all these people coming together and, and every week. And, the, and the, the catchphrase at the end of the week when he eliminated people, he looked at them and says, you're fired. And they walk out of the room. And there's one scene in one of the shows where they're sitting around the mahogany table in Donald Trump's boardroom. And he's talking to them about what they've just done. And he looks at one of the guys and said, Brad, you, you were awesome with this event. I'll be honest with you. You're the best person in this room. In fact, I think you're so good, I'm going to offer you immunity from being fired. And this guy says to Donald Trump, you know what? I think I did a good enough job. I don't need your immunity. I'm okay. And Donald Trump says to the group, Brad has done a great job here, but he just made a really stupid decision. And if you make those kinds of decisions running a company, you will destroy it immediately. And he looks at him and he says, Bradford, you're fired for being foolish. And this kind of shrewdness is the opposite of that short-sightedness. Jesus is not saying you all ought to be deceptive. You all ought to be conniving. He's saying you ought to be wise instead of foolish. You ought to have a bigger vision of the world than just the short-sighted vision that we so often live with. And I think that's the heart of what he said when he gets to the end of this and he says, use worldly wealth to make friends. Again, it's one of those head scratchers where you think, is he saying we ought to try to manipulate people into being our friends by giving them money? I don't think so. That doesn't sound like Jesus. Of course, this whole parable in some ways doesn't sound like Jesus, right? But I'm sure that's not what he means. He's not saying you can buy people's friendship. He's saying take a bigger picture. Take a bigger look at at your life and the world. 
You're so short-sighted about people. And you look at the people of the world who don't have anything to do with Christ. They understand that you can use what you have to build relationships with people. Or you can use it to tear down relationships with people. And you and I are continually being faced with that decision. We can use our wealth to build relationships. Or we can use our relationships to build wealth. We can use what we have to do good to people. Or we can use people, manipulate people to get more for ourselves. And the difference is living with this short-sighted view, thinking all that matters is this world. All that matters is this life. And Jesus is trying to help us understand there is so much more. It's so much bigger. What are we doing with what we have? And and it comes out of the heart of, of who we're serving. He says, after the end of this parable, he says, you can't serve two masters. Either you love the one and hate the other, you're devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both. Where is your heart? How you treat people and what you do with what you have related to people comes out of who you're serving. Many of you don't remember Jack Benny. Some of you do. Radio star, television, the early days of television. You know, and he was infamous for playing characters who were tightwads. And there's one scene where he's walking down the street and a guy comes out from an alley and puts a, pulls a gun on him and says, your money or your life. He didn't say anything. He just sits there. He says, come on, come on, your money or your life. He says, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. <laughs> Guy sticks the gun in his back. He says, your money or your life. He says, all right, take my life. I'm saving my money for old age. <laughs> and you know, it seems to me that every one of us is continually being faced with the decision. Who are we serving? What, do you, what is it going to be, your money or your life? And too often our response is, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. And then we wonder, why, why isn't life going the way we want it to? It's because we're who we're serving. It's about our master. It's about what we're doing with what we have that comes out of our hearts. Our allegiance, our loyalty. Who has authority over us? Now, it seems to me as I read this parable, I was thinking about this the other day. You read this parable and I think, surely there was a less complicated story for Jesus to tell to get that point across. I mean, there had to be a hundred other stories Jesus could have told to make his point. 50 other, 25 other, one other story that wasn't so, quite frankly, unchristian-like that Jesus could have told to make his point. But I've come to realize that when you read parables particularly, it's not just about the parable, but it's about the context of the parable. There's something about the, the way the story is told that has great meaning for the outcome of what Jesus wants us to understand. 
And I think one of the things, one of the reasons why Jesus tells the story the way he does is to remind us that living in the kingdom is messy. We all want to think, we all want the kingdom to be very distinct, black and white, good and bad, and we know who's who. We love, the, we love watching stories and movies and reading stories where, where the villains always end up being punished and the good guys always win. And we finish these stories and we think, oh, that's the way life should be. And we want the kingdom to be just like that. And we're reminded that that's not life. Life is messy. And life in the kingdom is messy. And everything doesn't get reconciled now. Someday it will, but it doesn't now. And one of the ways that it works itself out is that we have a tendency to think we have a right to choose to whom we will be generous and to whom we will not. That person has earned my generosity, so I will be generous to them. That person hasn't, so I won't. And the kingdom keeps calling us not to that kind of judgment, but, to, but simply to a heart, a spirit of generosity. A spirit that says, I will be generous with whatever I have because that's what it's like to live in the kingdom. That's a principle of the kingdom because it's a principle of God. It is who God is. This story reminds us that God cannot be put into boxes. And we love putting God into boxes. Not for his sake, but for ours. We love putting God into boxes because it makes us feel more comfortable. We don't like the open-endedness. We don't like the uncertainty. We want everything neat, packaged. We can explain it. We can understand it. Everything is good. And I'm convinced one of the reasons Jesus tells stories like this that quite frankly, are difficult for us to grasp and reconcile is to remind us God will not be boxed. And again, it's connected to the story before. We love the story of the prodigal son. We love that there is forgiveness and redemption. We love the, the way things turn out. But isn't there something in the back of our minds That's asking, shouldn't there be a little bit of accountability? So you're telling me that all the guy has to do after wasting everything is come back and say, I'd like to be part of the family. And the father says, come on in. Doesn't have to earn it. Doesn't have to go through a whole bunch of hurdles and hoops. He doesn't have to do anything. He just come to the father and he welcomes you with open arms. That's what the kingdom's about. Yeah. It doesn't always fit the boxes that we like to create. We want to make rules. God wants to extend grace. We want to create boundaries. God wants to help us understand the unlimited nature of his goodness, his generosity, his mercy. 
And these kinds of stories help to to shatter our boxes and tear down our boundaries. To remind us that we are people called, invited to generosity because that's the nature of God. Generosity is never about rules. It's never about boundaries. I mean, you completely destroy the whole definition of generosity if you start making rules and setting up boundaries. It's no longer generosity anymore. It's all calculated. Generosity pushes beyond the boundaries. We're often concerned about how little we can do. The kingdom calls us to how much we can do. That kingdom lifestyle of generosity. And we can't just talk about being generous. We're only generous when we act generously. You can talk about being generous all of your life. But you're only generous when you're generous. And generosity that isn't limited by whether people deserve it or not. Generosity that isn't limited by whether people grasp everything we're trying to do or not. Recognizing that generosity is often misunderstood and misinterpreted. And dangerous and risky. But we do it anyway. We keep being generous because that's the nature of the kingdom of God. Because that is the nature of God himself. The scriptures keep telling us over and over again how rich God is in generosity and mercy and grace. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than what this table represents for us. This table that draws us to the cross. To the gift of Jesus who comes in human flesh and willingly goes to the cross for our sins, not his. And rises to new life that we might know intimacy with him. This table is an invitation to receive the generosity of God. But it's more than that. It's not just an invitation about us and God. It's an invitation to receive God's generosity so that we will become generous people with each other and with everyone else. Because generosity is one of the defining characteristics of the kingdom of God who is known, identified, self-identified for his generosity. This is a table that calls us to freedom. Freedom to let go. Freedom from the bondage of, of holding on to what we have building boundaries around ourselves. The freedom to to trust God 
and to experience the joy of abandonment, giving to Him and to others whatever we have. Because we believe, however generous any of us may be, it cannot compare to the generosity of God to each of us. So as we come to this table this morning, let's come receiving, welcoming, embracing the generosity of God. Bigger than us, wider than us, greater than us. Asking Him to create in us a new spirit of generosity for others. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your goodness, for your generosity to each of us. Father, as we come to your table today, We recognize that you, the creator and sovereign of all the universe, love the world so much that you gave. You gave generously. Beyond our wildest dreams, your son, Jesus Christ. He suffered and died for the sin of the world and you raised him from the dead that we too might have new life. He ascended to be with you in glory and according to his promise is with us always. Father, as we remember all of your mighty and generous acts in Christ Jesus, we pray that you will accept this our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving that we offer in union with Christ's sacrifice for us as a living, holy surrender of ourselves. We pray that you will send the power of your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts, that in the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this cup, we may know the presence of the living Christ, be one body in him, cleansed by his blood, faithfully serve him in this world. And look forward to his coming in final victory. Through him, with him, in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours. Almighty, gracious, merciful God, now and forever. Amen.